Hi, I'm Bruce Schneier, and you're listening to the 300th episode of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. So this is episode 300 for November 28th, 2022. And man, have we got a show for you today. First of all, Bruce Schneier is here. He's going to be my guest for today. Early on in this whole podcast thing, I was trying to get Bruce to come on the show for a long time. And I emailed him and he's nice enough to respond back. But, uh, you know, he he was busy. He's a busy guy. And so I finally reached out and said, Bruce, the, the 100th episode is coming up. And if you were ever going to be on the show, this would be the one. And he finally gave in and came on the 100th episode. And now, now we've set a precedent. He came back for episode 200. And now he is here again for episode 300. We had a really fun talk. It was kind of deeply philosophical. We got into some really cool stuff. We're going to talk about hacking, but not just hacking of computers. We're going to talk about, you know, hacking financial systems and social systems and legal systems. And he's got a book coming out and he wrote an essay last year. I've got links to both of them in the show notes that kind of inspired this whole thing. It's, it was really a lot of fun. You're really, really going to enjoy this one. And to top all of that off, to celebrate the 300th episode of the podcast, I have not one, but two different promotions starting today. First of all, I've contacted some of my favorite privacy and security vendors that I know where I've got some ins and uh, put together a really cool giveaway with lots of stuff, hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of stuff. There'll be five winners. Uh, I'll give all the details uh, after the interview, so stay tuned for that. And then for patrons, new and existing, for the month of December through the end of the year, just like the giveaway, uh, I'm going to be giving away a really cool swag pack for people who sign up for an annual membership. So I will get to all the details of that after the interview. But I don't want to waste any more time getting to the interview because it was just so much fun. I really, really enjoyed it. So here we go. Without further ado, my interview on the 300th episode of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons with world-renowned security guru, Bruce Schneier. Bruce Schneier is an internationally renowned technologist and security guru. He's the author of over one dozen books, including his latest, A Hacker's Mind, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. I think that's due out in February. Uh, He's testified before Congress and served on several governmental committees and boards and written many seminal papers and has a great blog called Cryptogram, all sorts of amazing stuff. Uh, He's also the chief security architect at Interrupt. Welcome back, Bruce. Thanks for having me back. So you were last year for the 100th episode and the 200th episode, so you have now officially established an unbreakable precedent, Bruce. I, I hope you're aware of that, that you'll have to be back here for the 400th. Uh, I think we'll both be here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Let's hope that's we're both still here. It was also great to meet you in person. I was up in Boston, and it was great to kind of sit down together and have a couple of drinks. That was a lot of fun. I'm glad we made that happen. Yeah. So today we're going we're gonna to talk about hacking and artificial intelligence and specifically the juxtaposition of the two. So before we start, you know, you know, the terms hacking and hacker are often used pejoratively in, you know, the mainstream media today, though, you know, I do my best to correct that on the show. But for the purposes of our discussion today, how would you define hacking and like, how would you distinguish that between cheating and inventing? You make a difference between those three things. I've had it always had a skill-based definition of hacking, that hacking is something you can be good at, and whether you choose to use it for a life of crime or a life of solving problems is is a separate question. So I know, like politically in our field, 
hackers were good, then they were bad, and then we try to call them crackers, not hackers. It's <laughs> like, oh, forget it. Right? Hacking is like plumbing. It's something you are able to do. And you could be a plumber for, I don't know, organized crime, or you could be a plumber for, I don't know, some good guys <laughs> right. for the Avengers right. headquarters. I don't know. Right. So to me, hacking, you know, the computer definition is someone who is solving a problem in a way that is unanticipated. It, it, it is creative. When we think of hack together a solution, right? There, there's an, there's a, a flavor of do it yourself and figure it out and an unorthodox and novel. If a hacker is finding a vulnerability, they're finding something that the program permits, but like isn't okay or isn't supposed to permit. And, you know, we have this, I think, a term of art that we sort of know what we mean when we say it, even though we can't precisely define it. A little bit like art. It's mm. subjective. Mm -hmm. There's novelty, there's creativity, there's kind of a counter to the, to the way the system's supposed to work. And that's the way I think of hacking. I always think of MacGyver when I think of hacking because it's 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 not cheating. He's not inventing, but he's taking things that are normally meant for one thing and repurposing them for something else on the fly. Right, MacGyver, or before that, the A team, who are really good at that sort of, you know, we're going to make a bomb out of a couple of matchsticks <laughs> and a box of spaghetti. <laughs> right, <laughs> and we use that all the time in tech, but that type of creativity exists outside of tech. And the example I always use is the tax code. Right? The tax code is not computer code, but it's code. It's a series of algorithms. Inputs, outputs, we like to pretend it's deterministic. Right? You put in the money you made, and now comes the tax you owe. You turn the crank, it's 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 a program, but it's written in legal jargon. Mm -hmm. And that code has vulnerabilities and we call them tax loopholes and those vulnerabilities have exploits we call them tax avoidance strategies and those exploits are found and perpetrated by hackers who we call tax attorneys <laughs> or tax accountants it's a different sort of code but it's basically the same thing right an accountant is going to scour the source code, the law, looking for bugs, oversights, mistakes in the specification, mistakes in the wording, and, and try to find these exploitable vulnerabilities. So that's kind of my big idea of my latest book, which is out in February, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Yes, absolutely. All right. So Let's also think about artificial intelligence. When you think about that, you know, a, a lot of minds will instantaneously go to pop culture visions of sentient androids and rogue computer systems from sci-fi movies, you know, systems that could sort of think on their own and have agency, you know, what we you've called general AI, as opposed to specific AI. So what what is the reality of AI today? And when, if ever, might we have the sci-fi vision of AI? Yeah, I mean, oh, there might be never. It's There's a lot of terms here. And so the phrase you want is a machine that senses, thinks, and acts. Right? That's a classic robot. Now, an AI is going to be the, the think part in the middle. And 
you know, right, our notions of AI are, are determined by pop culture, by television, by movies, to some extent by books. And we're kind of used to this notion of, let's use robot again, of a object that has some kind of shell with the smarts on the inside and the sensors and actuators on the surface, right? And that is the classic robot. Now, the notion of thinking is, is very fluid. If you think about this, this senses, thinks, and acts, I kind of just described a thermostat. I described a pre-computer thermostat. <laughs> right. It senses a temperature, decides whether to turn on or off the heat, and then does it. So this notion can be extremely primitive mm. to uh, any kind of automatic appliance or refrigerator. Or it could be, you know, uh, a Star Wars android and everything in between. Like a Nest thermostat is somewhere in between. It does a little better sensing. It does a little more sophisticated thinking. And acting is just about the same. A driverless car, right, senses, thinks, and acts. But here's where I actually think we got it wrong. Because we assumed that the robot would be this object, this self-contained object. And it turns out a lot of the thinking these days happens in the cloud. Mm. A smart TV senses, thinks, and acts. But a lot of the thinking happens in the cloud. And you can imagine a driverless car where half of the sensors are like on the road at oh. other cars. Mm -hmm. And the acting is the entire network mm -hmm. acting in concert. So I'm going to imagine there's being you know, something barreling down a highway and the entire column of cars decides collectively to stop. I mean, that's the way it's going to work. So I actually think we misunderstood this notion of, of robotics by thinking it was self-contained and more likely in the future, it's going to be networked and more nebulous that the boundary between my car and your car is going to be fuzzy if they're driverless. Because I actually want my your car, my car and your car to be talking. Right. I want my car to know when your car breaks. I want our cars to be in conversation about it. We have to brake now. Who brakes first? How do we do it? Who swerves to the left? Who swerves to the right? And this is all stuff that's going to make us safer. When I think about the thinking part, the AI, that really covers a myriad of technologies. And a lot of it these days is marketing bullshit. It's it's pattern matching. It's Linear regression, it's kind of simple math that we dress up as machine learning. Mm. And it turns out that this specialized AI, right, AI that can read a chest x-ray or AI that can figure out how to turn the traffic lights on in town to maximize traffic flow, in very specific, you're not able to converse with it. You're not able to, I mean, it makes a terrible character in a movie. <laughs> Yet it is very suitable for the task because, you know, thinking is a human thing and we don't know how thinking works. And we just use the word when we talk about AI. It's, it's not, they're not really thinking. So I got to ask, though. So another technologist famously said, Ray Kurzweil famously predicted there will be at some point some singularity, some some point where computers will get powerful enough and these networks will kind of go off on their own and they'll just kind of spin out and become 
I guess, intelligent. What, what as a technologist, what's, what's your take on that? Is that is that ever going to happen, or is that just? A, a I mean, sci-fi? ever's a long time, and it's easy to weasel out <laughs> by saying, "Of course." And, and Ray's talking about something very specific. He says a point where a computer is able to design its next version. Hmm. And the singularity occurs when you no longer have to have humans in the loop in computer design. As long as we're designing computers, things slow down. But if a computer designs the next computer, it might do it in 30 seconds. And then that computer might design the next computer in 15 seconds. And then you've got this exponential growth as the computer designs its smarter progeny and us humans become collateral damage. It's a nice story. It's certainly possible. I don't think it's happening anytime soon. You know, we do have computers aiding in the design of computers, mm-hmm. but not designing computers. But you could have that exponential, you know, computer design curve without it becoming an exponential intelligence curve. Now, it could just be like better at playing Go mm. and not better at, you know, doing anything that a three-year-old can do. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's, I mean, it's the weird thing about human intelligence. Some of the stuff that we do that is so incredibly obvious and easy, computers have no freaking idea how to do. And the stuff that we can't do, they're really good at. <laughs> right. I mean, it's why you're seeing, I think, a lot of people talking about the way to think about AI is not in replacing people, but is as, as partners. That computers do the computer half and humans do the human half. And we learned that in, in chess playing. And the right. best chess playing systems are pairing a master with a really good computer program, right? Better than the best grandmaster, better than the best computer mm. uh, chess playing AI. That, that, that pair is somehow really, really valuable in ways I don't think we understand yet. All right. So as long as we're talking about sci-fi, one of my favorite sci-fi visions of AI comes from Isaac Asimov. I, I love sci-fi and I've always loved reading his books. And he at one point envisioned three laws of robotics and, and, Bear with me. I'll read them quickly. It's that the first law is a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second law is a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders conflict with the first law. And the third law is robots must protect their own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second. So I read that because these laws obviously assume, you know, a sentient robot with very significant cognitive abilities. And, you know, maybe as we say, we'll get there someday. But in the meantime, are there coding or algorithm protections that we can build into our AI system to prevent or mitigate harm? First, let's talk about those those rules. I mean, they're terrible. <laughs> they're so incomplete. And actually, I mean, I, I think what's not talked about when people talk about Asimov's three laws is that all of Asimov's fiction around those laws were about how those laws don't work. <laughs> True. I mean, he, he never said that's enough. He never said... Robot, here are three laws. Go solve the trolley problem. And he <laughs> knew that those laws, although they sound good, fail again and again and again because they, they, they lack common sense. They don't take into account the real world. They're, they're too stylized. But, it, you know, it's certainly a good starting spot. I write about this somewhat. The notion of, of that AIs can somehow break free of their constraints. And, and in AI research, you often hear it called the, the paperclip maximizer, that you, you, you basically give a, uh, an AI the task of maximizing the number of paper, you make paperclips, that's your task. And it 
proceeds like to enslave humanity and dismember the solar system in an effort to make lots and lots and lots of paperclips because it didn't have any, any limits. The, uh, the general term for the research that prevents this, that tries to make AIs not go off on some weird tangent because it gave it a bad goal, is value alignment. And how can we create an AI that mirrors our values? Two basic schools of thought on how to do this. The first is to explicitly teach it our values, to which I say, good luck. And the second is to have it empirically observe our values by staring at humanity for a while, to which I say, good luck. <laughs> so this is actually hard. Luckily, it's really far away, right? The paperclip maximizer isn't far off. But, you know, would we never actually know how the current crop of driverless cars deals with those sorts of trolley problems. We have to decide between two evils and which is the lesser. And I, I'm not convinced they're, they're good at it. There was, it might've been last year that you, you were able to program Teslas in what they called sport mode, where it would exceed the speed limit. Right. Just like people do. And the government said, basically, you can't do that. <laughs> So its response was, well, why not people do it? And the answer was, well, because, <laughs> which is a legit answer, but it would be good to understand what's going on there. I mean, why are we okay? And we are with humans regularly breaking the rules. But if you codify the rule breaking into some meta rule, we're suddenly not okay with it. Although we kind of are. I mean, you know the advice you got when you got your driver license. Stay within eight miles of the speed limit and you're fine. Right. Not drive the speed limit, but drive faster, but not too faster. That is the unwritten rule for humans, but it's not the unwritten, it's not the written rule for driverless cars. And I can't explain what the difference is, but I think it's interesting. <laughs> Me too. Uh, you make the point that, you know, AI systems don't understand the abstract concept of cheating. You always want them to think outside the box, but they have no concept of the box or ethics. So tell us some examples about that point. I love the Roomba one, for example, uh, where we, and this goes more to your rewards and goal alignment. I think it's a great part of AI research. I like it because as a security person, it really, really makes me happy. And, and this is AI is becoming hackers. They're given a goal. And they achieve it in a way the designers neither intended nor anticipated. Like three examples I could come to mind. One is a one-on-one a -on -one soccer simulation. And the AI realizes that if it kicks the ball out of bounds, the opponent has to throw the ball back into bounds, leaving the goal unattended. There was a stacking simulation where the AI figured out that instead of stacking a block, it could get the same number of points for flipping it upside down. And then there was a kind of an evolution simulation where the goal was to cross a distant finish line. And, you know, what you'd expect is that the creatures would evolve longer legs and stronger muscles. Or this creature evolved to grow really tall so it would fall over. <laughs> I love that story. Right. And these are all examples of you know, programming the wrong goal into the system. The Roomba example that you mentioned is someone's trying to program his vacuum cleaner. I actually don't know if it's a Roomba to not bump into things. 
And what it learns is to drive backwards because it had no bumper sensors in the rear. <laughs> right? So you're, 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 you're giving it a goal. And the only thing the system knows, because it's not smart, it's dumb. It randomly tries things until it achieves the goal. And it starts driving backwards and suddenly, wait, you know, the bumper sensors aren't giving me negative feedback. This is good. This is really good. I've <laughs> solved the problem. I'm not getting no negative feedback ever. I'm bumping into everything. Right. I'm getting right. no negative feedback ever. This is the problem of, of goal alignment and, and sorry, of reward hacking. Well, the other thing too about this is a lot of AI today has to do with what we call generative AI. And there's this thing called a GAN, a generative adversarial network that we're using where we kind of pit two AIs against each other. And so this brings up another point you you mentioned, and that's the explainability problem. We've got these AI systems that kind of learn on their own. And then when they're all said and done, we can't explain the answer. It's like, I think you mentioned this too, like 42 in uh, in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? Talk us a little bit about the explainability problem and why that is such an issue. So we want AIs to tell us how they reach a conclusion. I'm not convinced this is an issue, but, but here's the, here is, I'll, I'll lay it out. There was an AI called Deep Patient. I forget who, uh, who built it. And it ingested hundreds of thousands of medical records. And the idea was, can this thing diagnose diseases? Great, absolute success, able to diagnose diseases, but can't tell you how it reaches a diagnosis. So if you're a doctor and you feed a patient record into deep patient, it tells you patient has disease X. You can't query it for more info. You can't say, well, why do you think that? You just have to accept it or not. Now, we humans hate this because <laughs> we're used to asking the other doctor, well, why do you think that? And the doctor says, well, he's bleeding, duh. Or, right, I mean, look at this obscure medical test, and the, these levels are high, and those levels are low, and his index finger is pointed south. And all that together means he has this rare tropical disease that I've now pulled out a research paper about. But that's actually not the way humans work. We think we work that way. In general, our explanations are justifications. Mm. And just as I can't open up a computer and look at how it reached a decision... I kind of can't do that with a person either, right? Their brain is kind of squishy and confusing. <laughs> but if we're going to start trusting AIs, we want to know how it reaches a conclusion. I don't think this is going to be possible. Computers don't reach conclusions in the same way people do. Right. Humans think in a certain way. Computers calculate in a very different way using far more variables. I mean, there might not be any shorthand for the reasoning. It might just be these 2 million nodes point in these directions and therefore, and there's no reductionist answer that humans can be satisfied by. I did see a paper across my desk actually the other week that said that explanations are going to be inversely correlated. They're, they're, they're going to reduce quality of decisions, that forcing explanations will force the computer in down certain decision paths that are explainable in human understandable ways and reduce its decision search space. Right. And that makes sense. You'll have less useful decisions. But in some ways, I don't care about an explanation. What I care about is the result. So, for example, uh, back to humans, the Los Angeles Police Department has been judged to be racist. 
I don't care why they're racist. I don't want to open up the brains of the police officers and mm -hmm. look for the racism. I want them not to be racist. <laughs> and I don't care how they don't become racist either. So what use is the explanation? I want AI not to be biased. I want it to be accurate. I want it to be fair, whatever definition of fairness I'm using. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want all these characteristics. I can judge them from the output. And if they produce that kind of output, I'm happy. If they don't, you know, go back and fix them. And why they didn't produce the, the, a fair output or an unbiased output is less important to me. Right? Maybe oh. it's the training data. Maybe it's the weights of the internal system. Maybe it's something else. I don't know what it is. So if a system comes back and tells a doctor, look, you need to give this guy a shot at this right now. And, and or he's going to die. You're, I guess, what you're saying is we're going to get we're going to get comfortable with that and just do it. If it has been accurate, right? if it's been wrong the past ten times, we're going to shut it off, right? But if it's been accurate the past ten hundred, a thousand times, yes, hmm. you know, we get comfortable with automatic decision making when it's accurate. You know, we don't think twice when the traffic light turns green. We go. We don't think, well, you know, is the other side red? I'm not sure. Should I trust it? Because the last million times we went to a red light, it worked properly. I was green. The, the orthogonal side was red. So, yeah, I, tr I trust it. I, I trust it so much, I don't even think about it. And that's a really, really basic system. Well, one of the things you actually brought up in the article that I thought was interesting was you talked about a case where uh, and it was a study done about how we anthropomorphize some of these systems. And I think what this, I think the study was there was a, a, a robot that led people around a building and tried to give them directions from point A to point B. And it would invariably take them into closets and things. It would be, it would it'd be obviously wrong. And yet at some point that someone will pull the fire alarm and the robot's like, Hey, we got to get out, follow me. And people just blindly did it even after they saw that the robot was making mistakes. A great experiment, right? And it does show our trust of technology. And likely that will continue because generally technology is trustworthy. But I work in security, so I'm on the edges of that. We have to ensure the technology is trustworthy. But by and large, our technology is trustworthy. I set my microwave for two minutes and I walk away and I know in two minutes that microwave is going to stop and you're going to turn off. I don't have to watch it. I don't set another timer. I don't think about it. I just do it. I mean, these are all simple machines, but they've permeated our lives in such a way that we are comfortable around them. And my guess is that will continue. These machines will get more sophisticated. They will diagnose disease, possibly. They will tell us you know, where to drill for oil or where to place our solar wind farms for the maximal energy. They will, they will do a lot of things. And it'll be interesting to watch society as we cede authority to them. And that's also actually one of the things I think about as a security person. How do we know when to cede authority to a system? Right? The, uh, the traffic light was an easy one. We pretty quickly realized we could replace a policeman on the corner or in the middle of the intersection with a, a pretty dumb machine and it worked just great. 
more sophisticated machines is going to be as we get more sophisticated with them. Right? Thermostats. We all use the thermostats. And, you know, we replace them with smart thermostats, which I'm not sure is smart, but we do it. <laughs> in, in the book, you talk about it, and we've already talked about some of these things, in particular the tax code, but you talk about hacking in many other types of systems, you know, financial systems, uh, legal systems, political systems, cognitive systems. You also talk about things like autonomy, auto automation, and physical agency. And I wanted to drill down into one of the other things. Uh, one of the things that the AI has is different scope and different speed uh, compared to humans. And uh, like flash trading, when we see how, you know, uh, high frequency trading, that seems like something that might be a bad idea. I mean, so at what point are we, do we allow basically computers to compete with humans? Well, this is the United States and we allow rich people to do whatever they want. So if they want to hire computers and get them to be with humans, we, we don't say nothing. I don't know if I agree with you. I don't know if it's a good idea. Actually, I want to stop and step back and mention the two things you you been referring to. I want to describe them uh, to your listeners. Mm -hmm. You talked about a paper. Uh, this paper is called The Coming AI Hackers. If you uh, type my name into Google on that phrase, you will get it. it it's uh, a paper I wrote last year. And the book is a book coming out in February of next year, which is called The Hacker's Mind. Both of these explore this notion of hacking done by humans against broad social, political, economic systems, and eventually done by computers and AIs against those same systems. So that's the kind of framework of where we are. And thinking about AIs or computers in general taking over human tasks, there is a point where it's no longer a difference in degree, becomes a difference in kind. We see this in, you mentioned high-frequency trading. I think we see this in computer attacks on the internet. We see this in misinformation, right? Propaganda has always existed, but now it's being done by computers. And the things that change, and it's, it's a good phrase because we all think of the same letter, it's the speed, scale, scope, and sophistication. Right, speed is easier. Computers are just faster. It's scale. You know, once they're faster, they can do a lot more of it, and that just changes. You know, like you know, one tweet that's propaganda is something, but you know, ten million is a thing. Right. So they're not just faster at it; they just do more of it. And then uh, a scope that they, they can do it in more areas, and just just more more areas of our life will be touched by whatever it is the computer's doing. Then sophistication, they just like get more sophisticated at it. And this is, comes to high frequency trading. They're not just trading faster. They're doing fundamentally different sorts of trading than humans can do because they can do it faster, because they can do more of it, because they can keep a thousand or 10,000 or 100,000 variables in working memory at once. Right. Where humans can do like five or seven. It becomes a very different thing. So here we are as financial regulators or uh, you know, market makers, and we design these trading systems when we were you know, people standing around a trading pit on Wall Street shouting at each other and waving pieces of paper, right? The speed, mm -hmm. scale scope and sophistication of that, suddenly it's, you know, computers doing it and it's just so different. Right. And, and, and stuff is weird in high frequency trading. There are systems 
that basically look for typos. They post millions of trades that are far outside the money that'll never be accepted unless someone misplaces a decimal point by mistake, right? Then they're grabbed and someone makes a whole lot of money. Wow. Now, humans could never do that. Hmm. What do computers care? They're bored. They can make a million trades. They can propose a million trades a second, every second from now until the end of time. You know, waiting for the one time they're going to make all the money. Right. And so that's a different sort of thing. So how, and we are bad at this, right? We really need to redesign our trading systems to take this into account. Sure. I mean, one thing I, I, because now, you know, trading is, it depends on how close you are to the trade floor. So you're, you're getting offices nearby and fiber optic cables, because if I have a millisecond advantage over you, I can make money. Now, someone said, let's have trades happen like on the clock every 10 seconds. Let's make all that go away. Instead of continuously, right, trading will happen on a 10 second clock. So we as humans will decide that the size of your fiber optic cable is no longer something you can compete on. We're leveling the playing field, 10 second increments. Yeah. The entire planet gets to, gets to trade on this clock. And I just made that up as a proposal, but it really is you know, a way to rethink the system in the in a world of computers and i don't think we do that nearly enough in in any system well that a lot of these things assume uh, norms and things that were <laughs> that are not codified and these systems could if they're big enough can start influencing trades right i mean if you've got a big enough hedge fund that's doing automated flash trading you could certainly kind of do microsecond pump and dumps uh, you know, for certain stocks or do one thing over here that you know is going to have an effect over here or post a note to Twitter, which you know is going to have an effect over here. I know some of this is starting to get illegal, but but these are things that could be automated and done. And what you said, you said it right, starting to get illegal, right? The speed in which it's becoming illegal is human lawmaking speed. The speed in which it's being exploited is computer speed. This is not a fair fight. And I think that's one of our problems, that, that we are innovating at computer speed, but dealing with the ill effects of any innovation at human speed. I'm not sure how long that sustains. Well, software today is, you know, is meant to be updated rapidly and, and regularly. Certainly in the cybersecurity realm, we're used to this. You know, patches for security vulnerabilities can be made available in but days. But regularly is once a month, not once a millisecond. <laughs> So, well, it could be, yes, in practicality, it's not because there are humans involved that have to deploy that software. But in financial, legal and political systems, they seem they seem less resilient and patchable, partly because much of the code is written in laws, which are a lot harder to change. So does this does fact make these systems easier to exploit or make these exploitations more impactful? It's less the law and more the process. So if you think about Microsoft, they are they're a monolith. If there is a vulnerability the company decides to patch it and patch it. There's a vulnerability in the tax code. It's very different. Suddenly, people take advantage of it. They're now lobbyists in favor of it. One political party likes it. One political party hates it. There's disagreement about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, you can't pass the law because we're passing another law. We can't do things two things at once. And suddenly, it's two, three years mm. to patch a vulnerability in the tax code or in some other law. It really is the distributed process of producing 
these rules is not amenable to the agile, and I use that term in the computer way of thinking about it, the agile software development process, where you know Microsoft says, right, this is a bug, we're going to fix it a week from Tuesday, get to work, right? That can't happen to Congress. <laughs> no one has the authority to say to Congress, this is a bug, we're going to patch it on Tuesday, get to work. It'll never happen in the history of ever, because this is a different sort of rulemaking process. And I don't think we have really the governance models in place, not even just not to handle these, these, uh, these human loopholes, but not to handle computer loopholes because the, the exploit cycle is so much faster. So doesn't that make these things worse? I mean, the fact that we can't patch them. Yes, it makes them worse. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. You talked a little bit about politics without getting partisan. I think it's very fair to say that our political systems have been ripe for hacking. You know, it turns out that a lot of the things that were in politics are unwritten rules and norms that governed our political systems in the U.S. that were not laws. Um, we, we've seen this a lot in, in recent years. So politics seems to me much more about the Gus rule, like the old Disney movie, right? Where nothing in the rules that says I can't have a, a donkey on my team that kicks my field goals, right? So therefore, it must be legal. So it must be fair game. So. Would you say that the realm of politics is more susceptible to hacking by nature, or have we just been lax in codifying political rules? I think we've been lax. I think all human systems are incomplete. Sports is full of hacks. Sports, you mentioned Gus and, and or, or Air Bull. I mean, it's like the Disney movie of the decade of animal on a sports team. <laughs> right. So it's donkeys kicking field goals. It's dogs dunking baskets, depending on, on where you are. But it happens in real life. In hockey, curving your hockey stick was a hack. I just literally read, and I don't remember the name of it. There was a, a, a shot that was in, a hack that was invented in pickleball like a couple of years ago. That's now a thing in, in cricket, hitting the ball uh, behind you o- over your head uh, was a hack. Uh, I got a story in Formula One racing that some team shows up one year with a six-wheeled car. And everyone says, you can have a six-wheeled car. <laughs> and they like pull out the rule book and says, you know, but it doesn't say. And, and in a lot of these examples, the, uh, the sports league fixes it. So within a year, the Formula One rules were revised so that you can have no more or no less just in case than four <laughs> wheels in your car. Uh, the rules about curving your hockey stick have been changed, near as I can tell, three times since the player decided to do it. It radically changes the game, makes the puck go much faster, it gets an air, more exciting, way more dangerous. Mm. Right, so sometimes these changes become part of the rules. Dunking in basketball was a hack. Like It was never done, and it was declared illegal because, like, what the hell? But then it was exciting, so fans liked it, so they put it back. Mm. Uh, the forward pass in football was a hack that was eventually allowed. The hack of your your downstream receiver running out of bounds downfield and back into bounds to catch the ball, that was declared illegal. Another clever hack. So, I mean, football, baseball, swimming, yacht racing, all of these, right? It's just a set of rules. And people scour the rule book looking for loopholes. Just like they do with political systems, just like they do with the tax code, just like they do with economic systems, right? You know, Uber and Airbnb have exploiting loopholes in various city ordinances for what a couple of decades now. 
the filibuster mm. in, uh, in politics is actually an ancient Roman hack. It's not a modern hack. It was invented in Rome. And I forget the name of the senator who's like looking at the rules. I don't know. If, I don't know if he's looking at it. Are they written down? I don't know. He's, he knows the rules and he realizes that all votes must be taken by sundown. That's the rule. And he realizes if I just don't stop talking, it'll be sundown mm. and it'll be too late to vote. I'm going to try that. Hmm. And he did it and it worked. I think all systems are always susceptible. I think the willingness to do it mm. changes with society. And we are right now, not only in a low trust society, but in a anything goes society that, you know, if the rules permit it, even though it is immoral, unethical, should be illegal, it's okay. I think that's the way a lot of people think. Right? I mean, like I shoot this person dead, but like if you read the rules, it's technically not murder for this very complicated reason. I'm okay, right? Now, that doesn't always work, but it works in a lot of times. And I think we are living in a society where loophole exploiting is more celebrated. Mm. I mean, if you were socially ostracized for it, even though it might be legal, you wouldn't do it. Right? If the person who, who came up with the six-wheel car would be so laughed out off the field, fired, and couldn't get a job again, it wouldn't matter that the rules didn't say it explicitly because the social mores would take over. But I think we're living in society now where the person who's up with the six-wheeled car or any of the hacks is celebrated. So I think that's why you're seeing more hacking and more cheating. So I think we're seeing more cheating as well. And I've been sort of thinking of writing an article about this. It's, it's like professional chess. And a few weeks ago was, was pro-fishing. And a few days ago, it was illegally weighted cornhole bean bags is the latest scandal. Now, who knew there was professional cornhole, but there is, and there is cheating. Now, this isn't hacking, right? This isn't finding a loophole in the rules. This is actually mm. breaking the rules. But I think it's all a piece in sort of how society is acting today. And there ends the psychology portion of our uh, <laughs> podcast. Well, I, I'm not sure I'm going to let that go yet because it feels to uh -oh. me like this is why we can't have nice things. I mean, it's it's like I, I think I agree with you. I think it's a societal thing. I think it's a, a a function of the of human beings that that we have allowed you know these norms to be exploited and 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 all these. And yet, as a as a technologist, I I love the hacking aspect of some of these things too. Coming up with a six wheel car, if it doesn't say you can't, I think that's kind of clever. But it, it there's a reason why our our hair dryers have little big well. Big tags on it say, don't use in the bathtub. I mean, because someone did it. It's like we're going toward the lowest common denominator. It just feels like a loser's game. Is there not – is the only way we're going to fix this to change society to just – to not do these things and not let get let each other get away with doing these things? I'm not sure there's an alternative. I'm pretty sure that all sets of rules – I had the kind of a Godel theorem analog to sets of rules. I think all sets of rules are incomplete. Mm. And and I talk about this in my book. The, the the one of the problems. This is kind of back to AI and 
reward hacking. That in human speech and thought, goals and desires are always underspecified. Whenever you have a goal, you never specify all of the constraints and provisos and limitations because you can't. But normally humans are okay with that. So here's an example. I ask you to get me some coffee. You will probably go to your kitchen and pour me a cup, or maybe you go down the street to the coffee shop and buy me a cup. You won't buy me a pound of raw beans, nor will you buy me a coffee plantation. You won't give me a cup of week old cold coffee. You won't give me a napkin that has picked up a coffee spill. You won't go outside, find a person holding a cup of coffee, rip it out of their hands and give it to me. But even though I told you none of that, you wouldn't do it. You would know, get me some coffee, what that means. Hmm. Right now, that's different in context. If we were at a coffee roaster and I was the master blender and you were my assistant, I said, get me some coffee, you would probably bring me a pound of raw beans. Right? You know, because we humans are good at that. Now, AIs can't do that. They don't know. Back what you said about the box. They don't know about the box. Right. Now, the story that brings this home is the children's story of Midas. Remember the Midas story? Oh, yeah. So Dionysus grants Midas a wish. Midas wishes that everything he touches turns to gold. And Midas ends up starving and miserable as his food, drink, and daughter all turn to gold on touch. Now, that's totally a specification problem. <laughs> right? Midas programmed the wrong goal to the system. Mm -hmm. And similarly, genies right, are incredibly pedantic. <laughs> and you must be very precise in your wish. But what we know about the genie is that they can't be outsmarted. Whatever you wish for, he'll always be able to grant it in a way you wish he hadn't. Right. Because you cannot specify your wish with enough caveats <laughs> to make it unhackable. Right. And so these are very human stories, but they will naturally occur when computers start doing the same thing. And that's that stuff I talked about, about flipping the block and growing really tall and you know, the, the non-defended soccer goal in the simulation or the Roomba, you know, you leave something out and the AI exploits it because it's an avenue of problem solving. Well, another thing I think that computers are going to be really good at that humans aren't at, well, that aren't as good at is uh, coming up with inferences with many things. Like a lot of hacks are actually chains of tricks that, you know, where any individual one is relatively harmless, but when you combine them, they're devastating. And computers are really good at automating permutations of a finite set of things. So how but effective- They're really good at keeping lots and lots of things in mind, mm. right? When the human rule is what I think, was it seven plus or minus two? Right. Five plus, but still a number of things that we can keep in mind in general. Computers can keep thousands, millions of things, you know, in working memory. It's really hard not to use human metaphors. It's really mm -hmm. important not to. We're terrible. <laughs> but right, it will come up with, with hacks that are just too complex right. for humans to, to create. But the creative process requiring is keeping things in mind and using them in a new way really requires working memory. 
It's not something you can you can lay off. Which means when you send computers at, you know, find a clever way to do this, they'll come up with clever ways that we haven't thought of. And this seems really powerful and valuable. And, and you know, we can use this to, to help solve problems. But yeah, it opens up the the possibility of, of, of these new hacks. One thing I've got to talk to you about, it, because you've talked a lot over the years about 9-11 and security theater. You talk about terrorism being a hack, a hack of our cognitive systems, preying on our brain's fear and risk of assessment at risk assessment loopholes. I mean, we we're, as humans, we're, as you make this point often about how we're bad at assessing relative risks. And, and again, you've often called a lot of the things that we've done in response to 9-11 a security theater. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's actually the kind of the flip side of the same coin in terms of humans being able to understand what, you know, what a good response is to these things. So. How does this particular hack work, this, this, this terrorism hack, and how, how can we defend ourselves against it as humans? Yeah, it's interesting. And I did say that years and years ago, that terrorism was directly a hack of our brains. And it really preys on the fact that we are terrible at probability. And as a proxy, we tend to use salience and availability. So if we can recall... I don't know, a lot of tiger attacks in our village, we think that tigers are a real risk. If we can't think of any lion attacks, we think that lions are not a real risk. You know, we, we judge the probability of something by how easy it is to bring instances of it to mind. And that's a, that's a reasonable proxy in normal life. The problem is when you have amplifiers, right? So newspapers are an amplifier. What the press chooses to write and speak about, right. what Twitter chooses to talk about, changes what we think is salient. Hmm. So something that uh, when a plane crashes, right, are incredibly rare. Yet when they happen, they are on the news constantly for days, <laughs> for a week, nothing that we talk about. So we overestimate how common they are, like normal street crime. Domestic violence, we never talk about it. We underestimate it. Kidnapping by strangers versus kidnapping by relatives. I mean, so many ways that we get probability wrong based on salience. And also, we fear things that are more vivid. Hmm. So if something is just more catastrophic, it's a better story, we fear it more. We fear things that are that are, seem to be random and come out of the blue rather than have a, a cause that we understand. Because we don't really think it's a cause. We think we can skirt it. Like, you know what? We don't fear smoking that much because you know, we feel like we're in charge, even though we're kind of not. But, but, <laughs> but we think we are because we're doing it hmm. as opposed to lightning strikes or something. In terrorism, because it is so graphic, because, it, because it's, it, it, it's such an extreme event that is talked about endlessly, because it happens randomly to people who, you know, do nothing to deserve it. It just pegs our fear meter and it invites overreaction. Mm. And we overreact to it again and again and again. It's like we never learn. So can we, is there a cognitive hack we can use for these things as, as humans, as a species? Do I mean, we-, we can, we don't want to. In the 70s, the British press decided kind of en masse not to write about IRA bombings. Hmm. Right? If we deprive them the publicity, they don't get the benefits. Hmm. 
if a bomb goes off and, and nobody hears about it, is a terrorist attack. I mean, people die like a regular explosion, but the terrorism part, the terror, mm. it, which expands far beyond the blast radius, is carried by all of us as we repeat the story. If we refuse to, we are not doing the terrorist work for them. Now, that's extreme. I mean, that's like, what do you mean we're not going to report it? It's news. I'm not sure we can decide to do that, but that would work. Hmm. Failing that, and you know, I'm not sure what else we can do. The, the notion that we weren't giving school shooters, we weren't saying their names for a while. Mm -hmm. That was a good idea, right? You know, so you're depriving them the fame they want. That even in their death, they, they, they get martyred and get this fame. But that's not working. Well, and you talked about security theater, and I think that's a flip side of the same coin where we assuage our fears with some things that seem good on the surface, but in reality, really don't do anything to to stop terrorism or to stop the impacts of terrorism. So are we doing the same things in reverse when we're trying to, and when you have TSA agents everywhere that make us feel better, but yet, you know, loaded guns still get through some of these checkpoints somehow, you know, the three ounces of liquid rules and, you know, taking off your shoes and all these things that we do. I mean, it makes, it makes you aware of the fact that, you know, we're on this, we're, we're trying to stop terrorism, but in reality, how many of these things we've done? have actually, I mean, I guess we don't know because we haven't had that many terrorist attacks, but we didn't have that many before either. I mean, and, and that, of course, is the problem with terrorism. And we, we, we've had this debate, you know what, for 20 years now, that when your number of events is so vanishingly small in the first place, it's really hard to empirically judge the mm. effectiveness of, of any measure. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this is a, a quintessential problem. All right. So last question before we wrap up, let's end on a more positive note. Um, what about some utopian possibilities for AI? How will I eventually have an AI assistant who will faithfully act as my agent and keep my secrets? Will I be able to have AI defend my computer systems and, and personal data? Will I be able to detect deep fakes and misinformation and maybe fact check political ads in real time, which, you know, what are there other positive outcomes for AI that we should be thinking about? I think there's a lot of positive. I mean, a lot of it depends on who's controlling it. Mm. Right now, AIs are mostly controlled by rich corporations, which means they'll work against us. That flows downhill. I think AI has a lot of very positive applications in cybersecurity defense. I think it, it, it really helps our, our skill shortage by separating out the human and computer tasks. I think it can act as our faithful agent if we are in charge of it, mm. which is certainly a possibility. But these aren't tech futures. These are policy futures. Mm. This is us deciding how to use technology. And I think we can decide good things. I mean, I, lately, we tend to have been sort of tech fatalists, that we think technology just does what it wants and we can't do anything. That's actually not true. Technology is steered. It's just right now steered for the short-term financial interest of a bunch of you know, white guy tech billionaires. <laughs> and you know, it's kind of a dumb way to organize society. And I think we can do better. I think we will do better. Well, uh, so I lied. One last question, because you've talked about technologists getting involved in policy. And if you, you know, there's a lot of people out there that probably listen to this podcast that may be in software engineering or adjacent to some of these industries. Uh, what are some ways that we can get involved in, you know, obviously you might think of trying, you know, volunteering for the staffers for con congressmen or things like that. What are, what are some other things that if you're technically savvy and you want to make a difference, how would you recommend that people do that? So this is hard. I very much want there to be public interest technologists, but there's not a good career path. 
But we do need technologists in government, on congressional staffs, in the administration, at NGOs, with the press, teaching at universities. We really need these human aspects of technology being taught. I mean, I, I do security, but it's, this is bigger than that. But, you know, all of the critical issues of our century are deeply technological. So we need technologists helping to solve them. Otherwise, like, it's a bunch of non-techie lawmakers who make the decisions, and that'd be a mistake. <laughs> yes, we've seen some of that. All right, Bruce, thank you so much for coming to the show. It's always so much fun talking to you, and maybe we'll do it again before the 400th episode, but, you know, if nothing else, 400. All right, I'll be back. Big thanks again to Bruce for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking with him. Uh, I like the way he explains things. He's always got some really great stories, and all that is in his books as well. If you haven't checked out his books, you definitely should. I had actually a pre-release version of A Hacker's Mind, which is the book is going to be coming out in February. He sent me a pre-release copy of that so I could kind of prep for our interview. But there's also an essay he wrote that is kind of like the short version of that. Uh, he referenced that in our interview as well. I've got a link to that in the show notes too. So there's a couple things I want to circle back on from the interview we just did. First of all, he talked about the trolley problem. So I wanted, if you weren't familiar with that, I wanted to explain it. It's a classic ethics problem in philosophy. And the way it works is there's a trolley that's running out of control, zooming down the tracks, headed toward a group of people on the tracks. What, what they're doing on the tracks, I don't know. Uh, it, we don't explain that. But they will obviously get seriously injured, if not killed, by this trolley that is careening toward them down the tracks. You were at some point on the tracks between the trolley and the people. You could see the disaster coming, but for some reason you can't warn the people to just get off the tracks. And you've got this lever in front of you, and the lever in front of you will let you divert the train to a separate track. Well, the problem is on the separate track, there is another person, one person, who will be surely killed by this trolley. So you are now in a position to make a horrible choice. You can either do nothing and allow fate to take its course and probably kill several people, or you can throw the lever knowing that you're going to save those people, but surely kill one other. What do you do? So that is the trolley problem that he referenced. He also talks about the Godel theorem. That's G-O-D-E-L. That is some really serious math, and I'm not going to try to explain that, but if you are interested, you can find a link to that one in the show notes. Okay, so now I've got two big promotions that I want to talk to you about. So first of all, for everybody out there, uh, I have got a giveaway in celebration of the 300th episode of the podcast and the upcoming fifth edition of the book, and I'm giving away hundreds of dollars worth of really cool stuff. So uh, there's going to be one grand prize winner, and there's going to be four regular prize winners. So first of all, the grand prize. If you win the grand prize, you will get a signed copy of my book, the fifth edition, of course, when that comes out. You also get a signed copy of Data and Goliath from Bruce Schneier. And of course, that's signed by Bruce, not by me. You will also get not one, but two YubiKeys. These are hardware uh, authentication keys for those that are really into security. You, you will get a uh, 5C Nano and a 5C NFC. They're probably the two most popular models. And uh, the C in the 5C there is for USB-C. So it's all future-proofed and everything. My friend Joe at HackerBoxes.com, the uh, person who collaborated with me on the Amulet of Entropy, our badge for DEF CON this year, uh, Joe at HackerBoxes has graciously donated a Learn How to Solder Kit. So if you've ever thought about dabbling in electronics, HackerBoxes.com is a really fun subscription, and uh, this little kit will kind of get you started and, and see if this is something you might be interested in doing. 
Also, the grand prize winner will receive a swag pack from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which should include a hat, a t-shirt, some of their really nice enamel pins, and even an RF blocking wallet. Now, all winners, including the grand prize winners, will also receive some digital-only prizes, things that specifically do not need to be shipped. And I'll come back to that in a second. So all winners will get some Proton credit uh, for Proton Mail and all their various Proton services, including Proton VPN. You can use them however you wish. The grand prize winner will get $200 in credit, which would be two years of their ultimate service. And all other winners will get $100 in credit, which will cover about one year of their service. Malwarebytes has also graciously donated some one-year licenses for their anti-malware premium product. And Henry over at TechLore has agreed to give out some Go Incognito Premium course credits. Uh, you can take their uh, Go Incognito Premium course, which I've taken. And it's wonderful. I highly recommend it. We'll give out a license for that course for each of the five winners. So there's actually a couple other outstanding requests that I've got that may come in later. I actually might add more prizes to this. But as it stands, the grand prize is already worth about 600 bucks, And each of the regular prizes are worth almost 300 bucks. So great stuff, all there to help you increase your security and privacy. So there are a couple of restrictions. Uh, for example, the reason I did the, the grand prize the way I did is uh, shipping internationally is, is really painful and costly. So the grand prize winner will need to have a valid US shipping address. You don't have to live here, but, but you've got to have someplace in the US where I can send the prizes if you win the grand prize. All other winners uh, will get digital stuff, so I could just email that to you. And so now, how do you enter? Well, of course, there's a link in the show notes, but if you also go to fdsd.me slash ep300, as in episode 300, you will see the blog article that tells you everything you need with the form right there to enter. There's multiple ways to enter. You can enter multiple times. You can sort of stuff the ballot box, <laughs> accept it legitimately, because I want to expose everybody to all the different things that I've got going on. So uh, if you go to visit me on Twitter, if you go to visit the Facebook page, if you do some of these other things, you can actually enter multiple times. So check that out, fdsd.me slash ep300. All right, now, the other promotion. For my patrons, new and existing, through the end of the year, like with the contest, I am running a promotion. If you become a patron and sign up for an annual membership that is prepaying for the entire year instead of paying monthly, which is an offering I was just given uh, earlier this year by Patreon. For some reason, you have to qualify and they don't really tell you what you need to do to qualify. But somewhere along the line earlier this year, I magically qualified. So now I can offer an annual membership. I, I wasn't able to do that before. So for anybody who signs up for an annual membership between now and the end of this year, I am going to be giving away a super cool Dragon Challenge Coin swag pack. So if you sign up at the Castle Guard level or above, you will get one of my challenge coins in either gold, copper, or silver, one of my yellow foam koozies for keeping your 12-ounce beverages cold, a couple of my logo stickers, and also a brand new thing I'm just offering now. I've commissioned a 3D printable castle stand for your challenge coin. I'm actually having some trouble with my 3D printer right now, but I will have those ready. Even if I have to pay someone else to print them for me, those will come along with your challenge coin as well. Now, if you sign up at the Knight Errant level or above, and that's some foreshadowing because I've got a new tier to announce, but if you sign up at the Knight Errant level or above, you will get not one, but two of these challenge coins. Now, there are a couple of restrictions, again, because international shipping is so painful and expensive. If you sign up at the Castle Guard level, that will be available for anybody in the U.S., but if you sign up at the Knight Errant level or above, 
I will ship that swag pack to anywhere in North America, so the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, and also to the U.K. and the E.U. And now, as I alluded to, there is a brand new Patreon tier. I've been sitting on this one for many months, probably over a year now, because I wasn't really sure what I was going to do to try to, quote-unquote, make it worth it. And I just decided, after talking with some of my patrons, current patrons, just decided that... For this new level, at this point, you're basically just directly supporting me and being a patron in the truest sense of the word. So I have created a new patron level called Dragon Slayer. And for those of you who just want to underwrite all the things that I'm doing and all the ways I'm trying to help other people, that is a great way for you to do that. And by the way, if Patreon's not your thing, I also accept Monero. If you go to my website and look for the support page there, you can find all the information you need to just donate some cryptocurrency. So what does it mean to be a patron? Obviously, the main thing really is just to support me in what I do. Everything that I put together here does take time, effort, and money. Uh, there's services I've got to pay and things like that. So it, it, the very first thing I really want to do is offset those costs. But I also want to reach more people. I want to do more things. Uh, this allows me to bring you content from things like DEF CON, the DEF CON conference. But at the end of the day, you're supporting me and our mission to educate as many people about the very basics of cybersecurity and privacy. But I wanted to give back a little bit to my patrons as well and give them some private perks to say thank you. And so there are different fun things that you get as a patron that are unavailable to anyone else, depending on what level you come in at. Everybody will get access to the private Discord server. So you can speak with me and the other patrons and we can talk about things. It's really nice to have that give and take. It's, you know, me sitting here talking to a microphone, but on Discord, I can actually have real time interaction with you guys, which is great. Also, there is bonus podcast content for the Castle Guard level and above on the interview weeks. I keep my guests around for another 15, 20 minutes and I ask them some more questions, usually on kind of related topics. And so that bonus interview content will go to all my patrons at the Castle Guard level and above. If you are a knight errant and above, I kind of assume that you're probably more technical, that you're more really of a diehard when it comes to cybersecurity and privacy. And so I've offered some more technical and even more personal content as a bonus podcast for the night errant and above something I like to call Merlin's musings. For example, I've talked about things like steganography. I've talked about how QR codes and barcodes work, what port knocking is. And I relate a couple personal stories from my life. Like when I was first starting out in, in college as an electrical engineer and I was co-oping at Magnavox, I worked uh, on anti-submarine warfare. I helped to design sauna buoys for the U S Navy. So I talk about, you know, how those work and what that was about. And there are more benefits too. I've got a book club and other things going on and I keep adding new stuff. So if you're interested in supporting this mission, check out patreon.com. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. If you want to find out about this particular promotion, go to fdsd.me slash coin promo, C-O-I-N-P-R-O-M-O. All right, everybody, that is going to do it. Thank you for tuning in. Check out those promotions, share them around on your social media. Winners for the giveaway will be announced on the January 2nd show. So you've got four or five weeks to, to enter and multiple ways to enter. So that gives you time. And if you become a patron during the month of December and you sign up for an annual membership, you can get one of these super cool dragon challenge coins. All right. The holiday season is upon us. I always love this time of year. So let's try to keep this a happy season. Remember, I've got those super cool dragon coupons that you can download and you can give as stocking stuffers uh, or maybe put in your Christmas cards for people that you would like to help to improve their security and privacy. If you can do it for yourself, then you can help others do it as well. And everyone will benefit when you do. All right, everybody, stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.